You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. You love them, you hate them, and you can't stop talking about them. Announcers, analysts, pundits, they're all fair game. It's sports media mayhem with Alex Reamer. Time to let it rip. Hello, everybody, and welcome into another edition of the Sports Media Mayhem Podcast. My name is Alex Reamer. You can find the show wherever you can find your favorite podcasts produced here at Odyssey Sports or elsewhere. We are available on Spotify, Apple, Google. You know the drill. Download, listen, rate, subscribe. I can't believe it, but another NFL season is upon us. And to help celebrate the start or the dawn, of a new NFL season, I thought it would only be appropriate to do a big NFL media preview here on this edition of the Sports Media Mayhem podcast. I have three guests for you on the show this week. We'll start off with Andrew Buckholtz, who's a staff writer at Awful Announcing. Andrew and I go around the booth, if you will. See what I did there? Eh, pretty good, huh? Pretty good. And we talk about all the top teams, Romo and Nance, Buck and Aikman now at ESPN, Collinsworth and Tariko on Sunday nights, Al Michaels and Curb Herb Street, Thursday night football, and the new team at Fox, Kevin Burkhart and Greg Olson. And we talk about which teams are the best, which teams are the worst, what is the value of a high-priced announced team as well, because keep in mind, yes, we had the quarterback carousel this NFL offseason, but we also had the broadcaster carousel. We had Michaels and Herb Street go to Amazon, we had Burkhart and Greg Olson move up to take Buck and Aikman's role at Fox. Buck and Aikman, of course, get their big paydays at ESPN and a lot of other movement in between. So really excited to welcome on Andrew and dish on some announcers with him. And then after that, I speak with Ben Koo, who's the owner and editor of Awful Announcing, talk more about the business side of things with him, including Amazon's deal to stream Thursday Night Football exclusively I know why Amazon is doing this, to attract more eyeballs to Amazon Prime, but why is the NFL doing this? We get into that, the future of Sunday Ticket, which will have a new home next season, and also the NFL remains the most valuable product in TV and just gets more and more valuable as the years pass because it truly is the last thing that droves of people will watch live, and though the number of people watching live TV and thus even watching live NFL games maybe smaller than in comparison to previous eras. The gap between the NFL and everything else continues to get larger. Is this an indefinite trend or will we see a stop to it one day? Excited to talk to Ben about all of that. And then I welcome in Ben Fisher, who covers the NFL for Sports Business Journal. He wrote a great piece this week about the NFL secession plan. Did you know that out of the 31 controlling owners in the NFL. The average age is 72. Only eight controlling owners in the league are too young for Medicare. So we talk all the time about the gerontocracy in our politics, but we also have a gerontocracy in the NFL. What does that mean for the future of the league? I talk about all that more with Ben Fisher of Sports Business Journal. But oh yes, for us sports media people, The NFL season produces a never-ending string of topics and controversies, and I'm not just talking about Tony Romo and his performance and how it lights up Twitter each and every week. The number one thing that I'll be watching this year, besides all these new announced teams and how they adapt to their new homes, is how is Fox going to cover Tom Brady? Because, and I talk about this with Andrew, this is an unprecedented situation. Tom Brady 
signed a $375 million contract with Fox this offseason. And now Fox will be carrying his games. And Tom Brady, by the way, isn't just any player. He's only the most high-profile and most well-known NFL player out there. So what happens if Tom has a little injury and Jay Glazer gets a sniff about it? Does Fox report that? If Brady wants it kept under wraps, do they abide by their future and current employees' wishes? It's a messy situation that a lot of people will be watching, including yours truly. And I'm sure we'll talk about it many times on the show going forward. And I also may have mentioned this in a previous episode, but be on the lookout for some reaction podcasts throughout this NFL season as well. After big Patriots games, big national games. I write about this media because people like to read about the media. And I assume like to hear about the media too. I mean, it's amazing. You go on social media after these games and the trending topics are really, the announcers are first and foremost. So we'll be looking to get a bit of that action as well. But without any further ado, let's go to our big NFL media roundtable. It's the Sports Media Mayhem Podcast. Thank you, as always, for listening. All right, welcome back. Sports uh, Media Mayhem Podcast. And uh, yeah, Andrew, I didn't even mention I'm wearing my flag football shirt here to celebrate the start of football season. Andrew Buckholtz is a writer at Awful Announcing. If you read the site, I'm sure you've seen his byline. Andrew, welcome to the show. How are you, sir? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. Yeah, and thank you, as I said off the air, for giving me, I think, the best write-up I had a few years ago when I left WEEI. You gave the media calm. I, I write some love, so it's appropriate we have you on the show, I would say. Um, so, yeah, so, hey, this is a big NFL media preview podcast. want to talk, though, about, I think, the most fun stuff with you, and that is these announced teams and few jobs in sports media, I think, are more scrutinized than NFL broadcasters, which makes sense. I don't feel bad for them because as we saw this offseason, they make millions and in some cases, tens of millions of dollars to do this. So we've had a lot of shifting, this crazy carousel. So the number one teams, as we sit here on the eve of the 2022 season, we have Nansen Romo at CBS, Buck and Aikman with ESPN, of course, Tariko and Collinsworth Sunday nights. Kevin Burkhart, Greg Olson, are Fox's number one team. And then we have Al Michaels and Kirk Herbstreet, Amazon Thursday Night Football. Out of all those number one teams, which is the strongest one in your view? Well, I think the strongest right now is, is Nansen Romo. And I think it, it, they have the advantage of they're entering this season with some stability, really. Obviously, right. Buck and Aikman have the long history of working together, but they're at a new network. They're, they are with a new producing team. And I think that could be that could be good for them. I think there's going to be a little bit of adaptation there. And then with just about everybody else, there's something new going on, a new pairing, one new face, etc. So I think Nance and Romo have been very good over the over the past few years. Uh, and they clicked very, very early on very mm-hmm. well. And uh, I think they've continued to build on that. And I, I think they'll they'll do well again this year. Yeah, I was going to ask what your take is on Romo as we enter year four or five of him, because he's become quite the polarizing figure. Mm-hmm. He has. Yeah. I mean, obviously the big thing everybody wants to talk about with him is the prediction of plays. Some people love it. Some people don't. I think most people know which way they feel one way or the other on if it should happen at all. But I think that as we're getting to the, uh, we're a few years in with him, I think he's doing a better job of having that not be the only thing he does. I think mm. he's working it in to the flow a little better. Uh, he's not trying to predict every play. He's doing it when it makes sense, and I, I think it's 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 a pretty good balance. He's he's struck right now. Yeah, the thing with Romo I noticed last year was is I fear that he may become becoming a little too sticky. You hear him, and there's mm-hmm. there's a lot of noises that he makes during the telecast. Him and Jim Nance have some odd banter between the two of them. I remember I was watching a Patriots game last year and. I write about the broadcasts after, so I'm especially attuned mm-hmm. to this. And they were, they were, they had some weird segment about uh, they were doing something for cancer patients at Gillette Stadium. And Tony Romo, you might remember, said it's, it's, it's kind of a weird, like non sequitur type joke today. I don't. Know. 
I just sensed last year some weirdness with Romo in the booth, but obviously you didn't seem to sense that. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think I think I think that's a fair point. I think there absolutely have been times where uh, I think you're right, especially about some of the some of the jokes can fall flat. There, yeah. are, there are. Mo- I think he maybe leans into that a little too much at times. But again. I, I think I think in broadcasting is highly opinionated. Thing. Everybody's got their opinions on what's yeah. good or bad. I, I think you you've got a fair point there that he can rely on that too much, and uh, yeah, we'll, we'll see if he improves that. I guess. Yeah, I mean the thing with Romo too is such a breath of fresh air already came because A was taking over mm-hmm. Phil Sims, and mm-hmm. B I think the fact that he would just pays attention to the game and knew the current players I think mm-hmm. really said almost as much about the other analysts out there than him. The fact that you had a recently retired player who knew the current game, who was sharp, who was ahead of the action. It was really a breath of fresh air. I I think that's very accurate. And I think what's really impressive to me is how well he did so quickly. Um, because since then, we've seen other people try it. Well, obviously, we saw ESPN try it with Jason Witten, and that didn't work whatsoever. No. The, the much more usual progression is for guys to come in and start low on the depth chart and maybe eventually work their way up to a number two or a number one role. Romo was thrown into the deep end, and I thought he handled it very well right from the start. And I think the other thing that's interesting with him is that I think he makes Jim Nance better, or at least I think that the Nance-Romo partnership is, for me at least, a lot more fun to listen to and a lot more energy and a lot more current and relevant than it was in the last few years of Nance and Sims. I would agree. Nance definitely is sharper than he was with Phil Sims. Um, Greg Olson is a relative broadcasting novice, and he's somebody who's risen up the ranks Mm -hmm. pretty quickly at Fox. He'll be with Kevin Burkhart on the number one team this year. And that means there'll, there'll be a lot of visibility. They'll be calling Cowboys games, a lot of Tom Brady games. Mm-hmm. So I feel like with all the moving and shaking and Brady, of course, signing with Fox as well, they've kind of slid under the radar, but they'll be front and center this year. So what do you mm-hmm. make of that team? And what do you make in particular of Greg Olson, a guy who, you know, I'm Patriots person. I don't think I, I haven't been exposed to a lot of him. So I'm curious your thoughts. Yeah, I think uh, I think uh, Greg Olson has done quite well in the limited uh, experience that he's had so far. And he had the unusual thing of calling some games while he was still an active player, while he was out out on uh, injury. I think that's going to be tremendously helpful for him. He's not really, he's not being thrown in to completely to the deep end, although it is still a huge jump to go, go right to the number one team this way. I think also, I think while this is a new role for Kevin Burkhardt in the number one spot, I think Kevin Burkhardt is very solid, very professional, and I think is going to be a great partner for Olsen, somebody who could be that solid, dependable, and work him in. And I, I think um, what, what's interesting uh, with Burkhardt to me, obviously, it's from a, a different sport, but I've been really impressed with how he handles the analysts on Fox's baseball coverage and uh, how he's able to work in these very, very different voices, very opinionated people. And uh, I, I think he has a strong ability to relate to a lot of different analysts, and I think that'll help him with Wilson. Most definitely. And speaking of Brady, I think one of the more interesting broadcast royals of the year is how Fox will cover uh, their current employee. I mean, let's say that mm-hmm. Tom, Tom has a little injury and they meet with the production team on the Friday or Saturday. Do they reveal that on air if it doesn't need to be revealed? What do you think of that situation? Because it is unprecedented. It is. It is certainly something that we and everyone else in the sports media space is going to be watching. Um, it, it's certainly odd for for uh, for a network to be broad and it, and not just for a network to be broadcasting games involving a current slash future employee, but for him to be that high profile right. guy, right? right? Like you're not going to do a Buccaneers game and not talk about Tom Brady. That's obviously going to happen. So I, I think the thing that'll be interesting to watch is how they do it and if there are any noticeable differences to how other networks 
cover, cover Brady. I'm not sure. I'm not sure there are are going to be. I mean, I think Fox, while their top team is new, they have a lot of veterans behind the scenes in the in the in the production side. I think they're they're going to be aware that people are are looking for really any sort of slip up here, and so I think they, they may not may not make one, but maybe they will. And of course, was it 30, 30, 30, 37 and a half million annually for, for Brady? I mean, that, that yeah. that's pretty nice. Um, do you think he will, do you think he'll ever actually call games for Fox? Uh, it's a good question. I mean, right? you never, you never know with Brady, right? Like it was earlier this year that we all thought he was retired and done with the NFL. And then that changed. So, I mean, I think he's a guy who, his plans can change a lot. Uh, he has a lot of he has a lot of ventures beyond um, beyond sports. He's do, he's doing the autograph NFT business. He does some stuff with religion of sports. He's a, he's a guy who's got irons in a lot of fires, and so I'm. I think this this move certainly sounded good to him at the time he did it. I'm curious to see what it actually leads to. And I think the interesting thing is for Fox in particular, I think it's calling games is a big part of this. Obviously, that's why it's set up the way it is. But I think there's they're hoping to get a lot of value from other things as well. They want to really make him one of the promotional faces of the network, right. have him show up to promote other stuff, work him into their various betting stuff. Right. So I think the... the, the he won't be making as much money if he doesn't call games for sure. I imagine there are ways to renegotiate that, but I think we will see Brady with Fox in a lot of ways. Yeah. They're really, they really were buying the Brady brand uh, mm -hmm. team. Of course you have to trademark that now. Um, <laughs> so I mentioned all the crazy money that's been thrown around broadcasters and it really started with Romo and Buck and Aikman, of course, got huge paydays from ESPN. And I was interested to mm -hmm. read last week, uh, ESPN's executive VP, Stephanie Drulli, said in a conference call that one of the advantages that ESPN thinks they now have with Joe Buck and Troy Aikman is that them they can really attract better games to Monday Night Football mm. than they could previously. She said something along the lines of, you know, that's an all-star team that deserves all-star games. And I looked at it and said, you know, maybe that does make sense that you pay these top flight announcers top, top flight money and in return you get better games what's your opinion on that do you think there's truth to that well i think there i think there is maybe something to that from the nfl side because the nfl is super concerned with who calls their games we most notably i mean that's what sort of started all of this when nbc uh, brought in Mike Tirico and they thought he would do the Thursday games. Al Michaels would do the Sunday games. The NFL specifically interceded and said, no, we need to have the, we need to have the number one team. We need to have Michaels calling both of these games. And obviously they eventually relented a bit. Tirico did in the second season they added and so on. But the, the NFL gets, it has opinions and gets involved in who calls th their games much more than anyone else seems to. I mean, we had this story a couple of weeks ago about Robert Kraft on the, the broadcasting committee calling Rupert Murdoch and being like, make a pitch for Al Michaels. And I don't think you really see that in other sports. So I think the NFL is absolutely super aware of who is calling their games they are aware that Joe Buck and Troy Aikman are at the very least higher profile broadcasters than the guys they had. That's why they're being paid this money. And I wouldn't be surprised if that factors a little bit into the scheduling. But the scheduling is difficult, though, and we've written about this numerous times over the years where ESPN has lobbied for better games. They've claimed they've gotten better games. It hasn't necessarily been much better based on past records or whatever. I don't think anyone is is really, uh, especially on the NFL side, I don't think they're going to, they can't say, no, this game is great. This game is bad necessarily. So I think it's a little bit of a, it's a, it's a little bit of a behind the scenes thing, but I would not be surprised if that went into Monday night football or the top Monday night football games and better games. It 
it certainly makes it seem like a much bigger deal having Buck and Aikman mm-hmm. there. We'll see if that translates to more rating success. But certainly if you go by the feel, I, I think there is a lot of truth to that. Um, I also want to cover with you, Andrew. I'm looking down the list of the teams for CBS and Fox this year. And you get to the mid-tiers and you see again, I see Daryl Moose Johnston. I see James Lofton. I see Mark Schlereth. And nothing against any of them. But something that I always find interesting with the NFL and a lot of sports, but we're on the NFL here is just, you know, the lack of recently retired players in the booth who I think could really add like Akib Tlaib did this. And obviously we know why he's not part of it this year, but you know, just give me a fresh perspective. I know these are difficult jobs and a lot of these guys have done it for so long, but I don't know. I look and see the same retreads. I like to see some new blood on some of these middle tier teams what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's an interesting idea. I think that either that could go well or it could not go well. I think the advantage of having the the familiar faces is these are guys who you know can do the job. You know what you're getting. I, I think you're you're absolutely right that it's worth getting in some fresh faces and some new blood. I think it's interesting seeing Amazon doing a, a bit of that with their broadcast, bringing right. guys like Andrew Whitworth. And um, I think there's certainly room f- for that at the other networks as well. They obviously decided to go with a pretty uh, sticking with what they have this year. But I wouldn't be surprised if you see some of those newer faces in the next couple of years, maybe. Andrew, thanks for coming on, man. This was good. Good stuff. Nope. No problem. Thank you for having me. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And welcome back as our media roundtable continues. We go from an awful announcing staff writer to the owner and editor of Awful Announcer, founder Ben Koo. Welcome to the show. How are you, sir? Great. Thanks for having me on. It's exciting. We're right at football season. Couldn't be happier. Yes, I'm excited to talk with you as most people in the media have been a fan of Awful Announcing for a long time. Uh, you know, if I get once in a while, I've gotten alert seeing my name on the website makes me shudder a little bit, but you know, here I am still, still surviving. So it's good. Um, so I want to talk with you about a few of the more business, uh, stories with the NFL uh, media landscape as we enter a new season, starting with something everyone's going to notice next week when Amazon will exclusively stream Thursday night football for the cool price of $1 billion annually. I know why Amazon is doing this, obviously. I can't think of a better way to get more eyeballs to their products and to Amazon Prime. But why is the NFL doing this? I know a billion dollars is a lot of money, but I think they could get that from pretty much anywhere. So why why Amazon for the NFL? Yeah, I think for the NFL, uh, they know that Amazon was going to spend a lot on marketing and promotion. And I'm not 100% sure they could have gotten a billion dollars elsewhere. Okay. Um, you know, they launched Thursday Night Football as a way to get NFL Network into more cable households. Uh, I think at the time, Comcast and Time Warner were not picking up the channel. And back then, I think it only had a handful of games. Right. They continued to increase the games until NFL Network was in almost, you know, the majority of cable households. Uh, and then they started kind of cutting it up into smaller pieces where uh, Fox would – Fox, I think, went through, you know, where it was the most recent partner – there's a period of time between where CBS and NBC split it with uh, right. with uh, um, the NFL Network, and I think they've just tried and tried and tried <clears throat> to keep slicing it up and optimizing it. And I think ultimately they landed in a place where, hey, we are like the most um, watched and wanted content out there. What would a streamer pay for this? And I think <clears throat> when they kind of looked at their options. This was their final kind of, um, you know, their final step in the, in the monetizing Thursday night football. And yeah. <clears throat> to get a billion dollars is absolutely massive. I think, you know, previous deals, they were, you know, closer to 600 per year. Okay. 
Um, so I, I, I think for them, it, it was more, more of getting the money and also knowing that Amazon was going to sign a long-term deal and they were fully invested in this. Right. Unlike Fox and CBS and NBC, who had periods of like two years, four years, they knew this is going to be a long-term thing that Amazon would really get behind. Yeah, we know that the feel is so big for the NFL. Like when NBC wanted Tariqo to call the Thursday night games, the NFL said, no, we want Al Michaels on those calls. And now they get Al Michaels with Amazon and Kirk Street. It's going to, I'm sure, have a huge big time feel to it. But how does it work? If you log on to Amazon.com, I read, the game will automatically start playing on your computer. Is that correct? <clears throat> that, that's how I understand it. And there's been a couple examples of this in the past. Like the NFL has always wanted digital companies to be interested in their rights, knowing that because now that they work with Fox, NBC, CBS, and ABC through ESPN, that there wasn't really a fifth bidder to kind of make things interesting. So they've streamed games on Yahoo and Twitter.com. Um, and so they had similar kind of integrations where you went to Yahoo.com and a game would just be playing. And I think it was one or two games a year, uh, and it would be the NFL Europe game at like right. 9 a.m. <clears throat> and the same thing with Twitter where it's just kind of there. Um, <clears throat> I think Amazon is taking the same approach of like, we're going to throw it in your face no matter if you're trying to get to the you know the game and just let you know that it's there. Um, so yeah, it's going to be on amazon.com. It's going to be obviously in the prime video app, um, whether that's on your, your TV or on your phone. So they're, they're going to put it everywhere. If you look at the Amazon delivery trucks, a lot of them right now are skinned Amazon Thursday night football. I just got a package in the mail where the box, I thought it was like their PR people sending me cookies or something. It was, it was just like, um, you know, a screwdriver that I bought that was in like an Amazon Thursday night football box. Yeah, so no cookies, but um, a you screwdriver. Know, a screwdriver. The, Amazon's going all out to let people know. Will people figure out how to like watch the game? Um, maybe you and me, maybe our parents. If we're lucky enough to have grandparents still around, that'll probably be a struggle, you know? Yeah, I guess the NFL properly surmises that people will make the transition, find a way to make it work. Although I keep thinking back to this tweet and I forget who sent it, and I forget the exact words, but I think when this news of the steal first broke, somebody tweeted out, like, go ahead, NFL, keep putting games on stuff that I don't get. It'll only make my takes worse. <laughs> and, and, and like, and I, and I do feel that in a way, but I guess the NFL figures that eyeballs will just follow them wherever they go. Yeah, I, I think, you know, th they will lose some fans. Um, some people are kind of guessing where this first game is going to land. Uh, Amazon did opt into uh, Nielsen measurement. Hmm. Uh, the other kind of um, thing that's interesting is that DirecTV viewers will also get this game, and that was mainly because of bars and restaurants. I think huh. it only applies to bars and restaurants. So huh. for years, uh, bars and restaurants would fill up because they had the NFL Sunday ticket, and now the Sunday ticket is likely leaving DirecTV and – can a bar set up, you know, 12 TVs with Amazon Prime Video streaming a game? It's a lot of bandwidth. It's tricky to do. So that's another kind of area where they'll keep some fans. And also the local markets will also get the game. So I think that first game is Chiefs, uh, LA. Chargers, yeah. <clears throat> Chargers. So those areas you'll be able to tune in. So there are some other ways to kind of keep the numbers okay, but there will definitely be some type of drop, um, which is going to be hard to – get around. And you mentioned Sunday ticket, which is a big deal to a lot of people. Um, it's leaving direct TV next year in 2023. Um, Apple I've read is the front runner with like a $5 billion bid. Um, so what's going on here? Why is direct TV giving up? Why is Sunday ticket leaving direct TV? Are they just getting out bid or what's the, what's the story here? Yeah, I think they wanted to make it more accessible and they wanted more kind of innovation behind the product. Uh, and I think they wanted more money. Um, and I think they sent similar to the Thursday night football that Apple and Amazon, these are two companies that are growing their streaming businesses. Right. So with Disney with ESPN plus, but also they have big other businesses that can like make them be aggressive. The NFL Sunday ticket, most people have always um, basically seen it as a lost leader where whoever has it, uh, which has always been direct TV is losing money uh, when you only compare the amount people are paying for it and the amount of subscriptions and what they pay for it. But those people would have direct TV all year round in most cases. And they're, you know, 
they're paying thirty dollars of profit to Directv in you know May, June, July, August. Um, so Directv, I think, with, with the bill, with the price going up, I think has decided that it's no longer in their interest to, to continue carrying Sunday ticket. Like I mentioned earlier, there is a possibility that for bars and restaurants who have Sunday ticket, and it's going to be a nightmare to set up like you know, 12 TVs, 20 TVs, whatever type of bar and restaurant you have, that Sunday ticket may continue to, or or uh, not Sunday ticket, but DirecTV may continue to hold Sunday ticket for uh, mm-hmm. businesses. Um, but I, I think generally the NFL knew where their best bet is for money. It's just people trying to get new uh, streaming subscribers, right. and they knew that there was a hot market out there. And um, right. this thing has gone on forever. Uh, there were there were talks about this happening in 2020, um, and the NFL decided to continue with Directv for two more years. But this this is the media rights negotiation that has probably been historically the most covered ever, just yeah. because it's been on so long. And it's almost like let, let, let's figure it out and be done with it, you know. Um, so yeah, Amazon or Apple are the front runners. The NFL wants two and a half, three billion. You know, it, it, it's a crazy number. Um, you know, we'll, we'll see what shakes out, but you know, people seem to think that the the companies with the deep pockets and the motivation to do this are Apple and uh, potentially Amazon. And it makes perfect sense from the NFL standpoint. You already you've kind of milked all the legacy networks for as many billions as you can right now. So go to the next frontier: Apple, Amazon, Google, as well as a player I've read for Sunday Ticket. I mean, to so find your billions in the streaming world, it it's amazing. The rich get richer. It's it's. Yeah, I, I think right now they sense that, you know, streaming is still kind of at the end um, part of a bubble where everyone yeah. went in the streaming chasing Netflix. Right. Um, and it's probably going to pop in some form in the next year or two. And we've already seen like CNN Plus and Quibi. Yep. And a lot of stocks <clears throat> have gone down in the streaming service yep. uh, world. So I think the NFL sense is that if you buy, if you have a relationship with the NFL, you may lose money. <clears throat> but you may just survive the reckoning that's coming for the streaming world. Right. Where, you know, can Peacock and Paramount Plus, can some of these second tier kind of streamers who relate to the game, can they really kind of survive? And Because everyone's losing money um, essentially outside of Netflix. Like Amazon's losing money. Apple's losing money. Everyone's losing money. And hard decisions are going to have to be made at some point. But if you're a streaming service with the momentum of the NFL – you know, that might just be the kind of insurance policy you need to survive the reckoning that is probably a year or two away from, from streaming right now. Right. And even Netflix losing subscribers, but everybody wants the NFL. Everyone's going to watch the NFL and that parlays nicely to their point. I wanted to bring up here, Ben. uh, And we were talking about this off the air. The NFL is by far the most valuable product in TV. It's the last thing that really droves of people will watch live. But what's interesting is, of course, if you look at the NFL viewership numbers in 21 compared to, you know, 2011, even any any previous era, obviously fewer people watching live TV now just because of the times in which we live. But the gap between the NFL and everything else seems like it's only getting bigger. I think last year, 75 of the 100 most watched shows on TV were NFL games. So my question is, do you think this trend is going to just continue for the foreseeable future that, yes, the, the raw viewership numbers may continue to drop a little bit, but the gap between the NFL and everything else will just get wider, which makes the NFL even more valuable than it already is. Yeah, I, I think you're 100% uh, correct there. Uh, ratings have slid down for everything. And if right. you're someone who's trying to make a point, you can make whatever point you want. There were a lot of kind of conservative news outlets saying – Look at this kneeling during the anthem. Uh, the ratings are going down, and people just ran with that. But you know, horse racing—you know, the, the horses aren't kneeling. The ratings are no. going down there. You know, golf—the ratings are going down. Um, you know, across the board, ratings are going down. But you're 100 percent correct that the NFL is going down at a less uh, scary trajectory right. than pretty much everything else. And you can track that to a lot of the streaming services. You can track that to younger people watching TikTok, Snapchat, <clears throat> who are not going to be in a TV household. Um, so they just can't watch because their their pri- primary way of viewing content is on their phone. 
Um, so that that seems to be happening, but it's happening less to football. And you're you're seeing like, you know, legacy media begin to make like tough decisions. Like I think I, I read that like uh, NBC was thinking of getting rid of their ten o'clock p.m. hour right. on the weeknights. Um, you know, because ratings are going down there. Uh, right. I think the, the in, in this upcoming season, like comedies were almost like non-existent on one network. Right. The CW is getting away from like having like their own shows. You're going to see like more reruns and so on. So across the board, um, cable companies, broadcast networks are trying to figure out like what, you know, what can we make money on when the ratings are going down? And, you know, the NFL doesn't have that issue. The NFL is, is staying high, staying, you know, above everyone else. And they're going down at a much slower rate. So it's a reality for everyone that ratings are pretty much going down across the board, but the NFL seems to be kind of, you know, trending downward at a, at a safer decline than some of these other properties. And that point you made about young people not watching anything on TV and TikTok and Twitter videos or Instagram is so accurate. And whenever I read about sports leagues going to streaming, like Major League Baseball had, of course, the Apple Plus <laughs> Friday night package this year. And part of me says like, they're still behind. Like that's still like, I think five years behind the times. Like I think that just the whole concept. And again, the NFL is the one sport that this doesn't quite apply to, but just the concept of somebody sitting down in front of a TV, a laptop, a phone, an iPad, whatever, and watching a game for three hours. I don't care what platform it's on that in and of itself, I think is an antiquated idea. And it's going, and this is a long-term story because all these deals are wrapped up for many more years, but it's going to be very interesting to see kind of how this evolves over the next decade. Yeah, I, I spoke in a sports business class uh, a handful of months ago. Uh, I talked about cord cutting. The professor said, do you guys even know what that is? <clears throat> they didn't really know. I said, how many of you guys currently like have cable? Um, I think like six of 30 students raised their hand. Um, and then I said, okay, if you guys all get really good jobs, you're making good money how many more of you would get cable and like two people raise their hand. So there, there seems, you know, the research is out there that there is a group of people who are becoming like of age of being in the workforce and living on their own who can afford to have cable and access to all these sports and watch games, but seem to just issue it for TikTok, Snapchat, Twitter, you know, whatever streaming services, um, and, and that's going to be, that's going to be tough. You know, if, if that generation and future generations like refuse to enter into this TV ecosystem that has all of the sports, like that's, that's not going to be good. So, uh, everyone's thinking about it. No one seems to have a good, uh, answer. Uh, but that, that's, uh, a gen, a large part of these downward trends is that, uh, older viewers are, are, you know, dying <laughs> well, you know, to be morbid. and the younger viewers are just not they don't have access to the channels to watch these games because they've grown up on other forms of media we'll be reading all about it on awful announcing i'm sure ben ku is the owner and editor of awful announcing ben thanks for the time thanks for having me on and welcome back to the show. Our NFL media roundtable wraps up here with Ben Fisher, who covers the league for Sports Business Journal. Ben, how are you, my friend? I'm great. Thanks for having me. I'm excited for football. Yeah, I am too. Great to connect here with you after following along on Twitter for all these years. Um, so you wrote a really interesting piece in Sports Business Journal this week about the gerontocracy among NFL owners. We talk about it all the time in our politics, but we also really have it in the NFL, and you had just some incredible numbers in there. Only eight controlling owners in the league are too young for Medicare. The average age of a controlling owner is 72. Jerry Jones will turn 80 this year. Robert Kraft is 81. Arthur Blank, 80 years old as well. What does this mean for the league? Well, it means that one way or another, and I certainly don't want to suggest that any of these individual men are, are walking off the stage in the immediate future, but we can do the math one way or another that people that run the NFL are likely to be very different from the roster of the men who have run the NFL for the last 20 or 25 years in five to 10 years from now. And, you know, not unlike other parts of our lives, politics, we even hear stories about this in business, about this generation is held on longer than anyone anticipated. And 
Um, they've done a lot of good things for the league, but there could be a very intense period of transition where there's going to be a lot of new faces in those rooms in a fairly short period of time. And there's some risk associated with that. And what is some of that risk? Well, most of it, it just comes down to the capabilities and competence of the owners. Um, the NFL is a little bit unusual compared to the other pro sports leagues. They've always expected their owners to do some heavy lifting in the ways the other leagues don't do. Um, you know, this is a little glib, but somebody once said that David Stern and Adam Silver tell the NBA owners what's going to happen. The NFL commissioner, Roger Goodell, asks the owners what's going to happen. <laughs> and so the, the owners in football are generally much more influential. And, you know, they do real lift, heavy lifting. There's committee structures. They, they don't just sit around and get reports. You know, if things go wrong in a, in a media negotiation, Robert Kraft gets on the phone and talks with the Redstones and talks with, uh, with the Murdochs. I mean, these owners do real work. And the NFL's great credit, one of the reasons it's been so successful for going on a century is that these owners have tended to be pretty good at it. Uh, but, you know, the franchises are bigger in value now. You know, just because you're wealthy doesn't mean you're good at running a football team. I think we can right. all point to some examples from that. Just because your father was a successful owner in the NFL doesn't necessarily mean you're going to. And, you know, without some fairly careful strategic approaches to this, the NFL could wake up one day and have a totally different group of owners. And, you know, they're at very least new and at very worst, just not as good as their dads or not as interested in doing that work. You know, if uh, if an associate vice president in the NFL calls a new owner, says, I'd like you to look over some numbers for a new proposal we've got. The owners really don't have to do that. It's their choice. You know, they're, mm. they're, 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 they run their own business. You know, they don't report to the league office. So it's a combination of both the competence and the desire to get involved in league business. And not all owners are at the same level about that. And you mentioned this in your article, and it's such a good point that the last 20, 25 years is, this is the most the most the most unprecedented time in NFL history in terms of growth and in terms of overall you know, league, league growth across all sports. I mean, the NFL is such, it's always been a monster, but it's such a monster now. And a lot of these guys are, as you mentioned, kind of nearing the end of the line. How is the league or these teams preparing for this inevitable changeover? Well, some of this has been going on for a little while now. They are trying to get in front of messy intra-family secession issues. Um, the biggest nightmare scenario for these NFL teams is when the families don't get along. Um, some of it is inherent to second or third generation. Most of the old line NFL teams, the Steelers, the Giants, the Cardinals, they're onto a third generation. And ask anybody who specializes in family business strategy, that's when family businesses tend to either be sold off and become like a proper publicly traded company or they just sort of disintegrate because there's too many people in that third generation. They're too far removed from like the original entrepreneurism right. of things. And a lot of NFL teams are at that point where, right. you know, even if, I mean, the Maras, there are dozens of people with the last name Mara who have like a uh, historical right to say what's going on with the New York Giants. The odds that all of them will be on the same page for an extended period of time gets to be pretty low. And, you know, the, the, the Roonies have faced issues like that. Uh, you know, Mike Brown of Cincinnati is 87 and he's got some granddaughters coming up. So the league has tried to um, make problems with the estate planning less likely. They've required teams to put forth an annual plan of secession. So if one of these guys does abruptly die or become incapacitated, there's no drama in the real time. It's like a 25th Amendment where there is a designated successor for these people. Um, they have reworked the ownership rules to try to minimize the estate tax. Uh, that's one thing that is a big problem for them, that when a team, a controlling interest in the NFL team is um, passed down from a father or a mother to the next generation, the taxes on that because of how valuable the teams are now can be more than they've gotten in liquid wealth. So then they have to sell them outside of the team under somewhat of an emergency situation. And that tends to lead to bad outcomes. And in general, the league is begging these aging billionaires to have frank conversations with their families. So there's no surprises. Like the thing that happened in New Orleans when Tom Benson changed, uh, gave his right. team to his wife rather than his daughter at the last second right. in his final months. That's the sort of thing that leads to bad outcomes. And the thing in Denver was a good example, how it ultimately ended really well for the league. But they have essentially had a vacancy at owner for nearly a decade. And it was a very important owner. 
And you'd never let that happen if that was like an executive vice president. But because it's an owner and you can't really tell him what to do with his asset, mm. your, your hands are your hands are tied. So the league has to get creative about this. It's it, it goes back to the inherent weirdness that is Roger Goodell being so powerful, but also subordinate to the owners. Right. Yeah. So it seems like we have a bunch of Logan Roy's running the NFL. Hopefully not a lot of Kendall Roy's for uh, for our secession references here. I had to get that in. Right. I mean, come on. It was too easy. Oh, our, our cover art for the story was this great, like, sepia-toned illustration of Roger Goodell in the Logan Roy <laughs> position and all the owners, you know, looking at each other slightly askew. But it's a perfect – the show is a perfect uh, analogy for this because, you know, I am going to indulge in the assumption that a critical mass of your listeners have seen the show. But yes. Kendall Roy is a classic second-generation right. uh, family business guy. Is that he's, he's not without his talents. But he's clearly not his father either. And right. you get outside experts and outside shareholders like, are you really going to give it to that guy? The, oh, the boss, the, the dad's like, well, I recognize he's not perfect, but he's probably the best choice of my four children. But then right. it gets late in life. He has a stroke. You start reconsidering things. Family relationships have a way of changing. And, you know, the NFL, I think, has is, is, is put a lot of thought into this and tried to get ahead of it. But as my story says several times, there's an inherent uncertainty in this process. So with that in mind, you also write that the league prefers ownership to stay within the hands of a single family. Why is that? You know, that's a surprisingly complex question because you can look what happened with the Broncos and say, well, they've got a new all-time sales record. All the Bolin children were made unbelievably wealthy. And now all the other NFL teams can say my team is worth X because the Broncos sold for this. And, you know, they get guys who ran Walmart for 30 years. Right. You may not like Walmart for political purposes, but it's the largest employer in the world. They clearly are good at what they do and are capable of joining the NFL. So you might say, well, why was that such a bad thing? Um, the league recognizes that that can be a good thing, but they see a lot of risk. They see the odds that some rich person that isn't particularly good at running a business might get the team. And they worry about what happens if those legacy families all go away at once. They like the fact that the teams that have gone way back together, the, 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 the Roonies, the Maras, the Bolins, um, they tend to be aligned and they tend to know the value of sticking together. They're league first people. One of the best things you can say about an owner inside the NFL is a league right. first guy. Right. And they know these old line families, even if they're not the most entrepreneurial or ambitious people about maximizing the value in the way that Jerry Jones is, John Mara, Art Rooney, Michael Bidwell down in Phoenix, Mike Brown in Cincinnati, they are very much aligned on what is best for the league. And even if they disagree with each other, they're going to get on the same page. And every time a team trades to a new owner, there's on some level a risk that that guy's going to become this generation's Al Davis and just like be a big pain in everyone's butt. Um, so they just, they believe that as long as they can get some degree of coordination within the families, it's generally a good thing to keep them in the families if possible. And I know there are too many to name, but we can just go through the big ones here. How do the kids stack up to their parents? Um, well, the good news for the NFL is that the two guys who have been widely acknowledged to be the most influential owners, Robert Kraft and Jerry Jones, uh, they seem to have the succession pretty well in hand. Robert's son, Jonathan, yep. is, um, you know, it's hard to find anyone to say anything bad about Jonathan Kraft. Um, I wrote a big story about Robert Kraft when the SBJ gave his Lifetime Achievement Award in uh, in May. And, you know, people are falling over themselves to give all the credit to, to Jonathan Kraft. He's a very reliable right-hand man. Stephen Jones in Dallas um, is the oldest son of Jerry Jones. He's been involved in league business for a long, long time. I can't claim to have the same relationship with him that I do with the crafts, but he's on the competition committee. He is seen, I think, in practical terms as, if not actually an owner, a very senior junior owner, I guess. So those guys can step right in. And then Jerry Jones' other two children, Jerry Jr. and Charlotte Jones, um, also are very involved. So I think there's a pretty high degree of confidence there. Um, Stan Kroenke's successor is Josh Kroenke, who already runs the Colorado Avalanche and Denver Nuggets. So does that necessarily mean he's good at the NFL? No, but there's a fairly high degree of comfort there. Um, but, you know, it's a short list of teams where this is clearly understood mm -hmm. who's going to be next. 
The Chicago Bears, as, as far as I know, have a bit of a question mark as to far as what happens when Virginia McCaskey dies. And she is the oldest controlling owner. 99, right? Yes. She turns 100 on January 5th. And there's a lot of McCaskies. And there's some people that think that team would be better off being sold outside of the McCaskey family. And there's presumably some McCaskies who very much want to become the next controlling owner. But that's sort of a red, uh, shouldn't call it a red flag, but that is a big question mark. Um, so it's not so much that there's clearly, there's no Connor Roy's out there as far as I know. I don't <laughs> think there's any, I don't think there's any dedicated successor who is like absurdly ridiculous to think of in that role. There's probably a number of Kendall Roy's in there who, you know, have their strengths, but also yeah. we're going to keep looking for other alternatives in the meantime. And then I think the biggest scary, the scariest thing for an NFL is places where they just don't know. And I think there's more of those than they want to let on. Well, as long as they don't like uh, get on Twitter and try to do and put, throw themselves big 50th birthday parties like Kendall Roy, then maybe then, then maybe we'll be OK with that. Um Last thing I want to hit on with you, I didn't realize this because he is in great shape and I do loathe to give him credit, but Roger Goodell is 63 and that's the age where in business world, a lot of high powered executives start to form their own secession plans and wind down a bit. Um, yeah. What, what is the scuttlebutt there with Goodell and how much longer he could be at the helm? Because I don't think a lot of people realize again that he's in his mid sixties now. Don't, don't you hate it? I, I would I would never say this to his face, but he looks <laughs> 10 years younger than he, he is. He does. At least, and he's, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and he's in great shape. You know, he'll make sure you understand that he was in the gym that morning. You well, ever right. talked to him, by the way. Yeah, so, <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I, there was we wrote a we wrote an accompanying piece, this ownership secession, trying to game out who's next in the commissioner's role. And Goodell is a real mystery on this. He's got two years left on his current contract. In 2017, it was said by the then league spokesman, former White House spokesman, Joe Lockhart, this would be his last deal. The league almost immediately walked that back and now says there's no time frame on Goodell leaving. I think it's widely understood that this next new contract he's currently negotiating will be his last. He would be, we're talking about either a two or four year extension on a deal that has two years left. So either 2026 or 2028. That'd make him either 66 or 68, squarely in re imminent retirement age. But, you know, he's in good health. His kids are out of the house. Some of the problems he had in like the 2010 to 2017 era seems to have dissipated. And what else is he going to do? Maybe he could make more money somewhere in corporate America, although I doubt it. One thing he's never going to do is have a job that's as important as the job he's got right now. He can get anybody in the world on the phone in right. about an hour and as commissioner in the NFL, whatever he does next, you know, his dad was a Senator. There's never been a sense that Roger Goodell wanted to get into politics and who wants that trouble? <laughs> Hell, I mean, yeah. he's King of the world as commissioner. So he may not even retire after his next contract. Um, mm. And you know, that's a, that's a hard thing to guess. And that's led to, there's been some speculation. There's been some very up strong up and coming junior executives, the NFL who have seen that and said, well, I was going to wait him out, see if maybe I got a crack at commissioner, but I can't wait forever. Chris Halpin, a young, young, for early 40s guy, was chief strategy officer for the league, abruptly went to the media company IAC in January. Mm. And that was pretty widely read as not frustration exactly, but a recognition that if you're in your early 40s and you're counting on Roger Goodell's job to be open in the near future, you should probably should should reconsider that strategy. So. Hard to say what's next. I think Roger's there for at least another four to six years, though. Uh, the NFL. The games are great, but the palace intrigue is just as good. Ben Fisher, Sports Business Journal. Thanks for the time. Sure thing. Anytime.